Chesler. Well, I, if we want to make an English pun, they're going to take a tour of the land of Israel. Okay, they're going to go to the land of Israel. Moses gives them a series of questions. How good the land is, what kind of produce it has, what kind of people live there, whether the cities are fortified or not. They are kind of feeling their way. They know that this is the land they're supposed to conquer. So they're getting their feet wet. As a word, you send the best. You know, the 12 princes are the best of the best, the leaders of the 12 tribes, and they're supposed to be mechazek. They're supposed to go in, see the land, and come back and say, we need to move on. Let's go. There is a specific set of instructions. Uritem et aretz mahi, go and see what the land is. I love there's a beautiful comment that it, the land raises its people. We, we've said that before. Uh, little little piece of data here in the in the calendar. I wonder if that it, the, these the the season that they were sent was the season of the harvesting of grapes, uh, which would be when would the harvesting of grapes is Shavuot. About Shavuot. Okay, so they they're. When I was on kibbutz, that's when we were beginning to harvest the grapes. Okay, so so, I, I it's it's you know, that that's not a, an insignificant detail. That's a significant detail. It says like you know things are ripening, things are happening. It it is that I guess the Torah's literary way of shaping the kind of anticipatory moment that this is going to be something that we're going to reap. There's going to be something wonderful here. And then what happens? Rabbi Jeremy Kalinowski. The, the spies come back. There were 12 of them. They were, pre, they were princes of each tribe. They were exceptionally noble. They were exceptionally talented. And they, they went, the 12 of them went for this, uh, this three-hour tour. No, not a three-hour tour. 40-day 40, 40 tour. 40-day tour. Latour, Barry, Barry referenced the pun without explaining. It always says Latour. That's, they, they, will, they will tour through. The, the land and they come and they say, man, this is beyond us. Lo nuchala. Lo nuchala. We're not up to this task. Um, and, and the people there are gigantic. It, it, yes. It's a wonderful land. There's lots of trees. There's lots of produce. It's awesome. And everybody there is a giant and they're going to clobber us. And we, we are just not up to this task. And two of, two of the spies, uh, Kalev and Yehoshua, 
stand up and say, Oh, yes, we can. We've been through a lot on the way to here, and we can do this too. And they, whereas the rest of the people are moaning and groaning, Caleb silences them and, and tries to give them, unsuccessfully, unfortunately, tries to give them the hope and optimism that this is within their grasp, not beyond it. So, so you know, in previous uh, episodes, we've talked about the way that the Torah contributes language to modern Hebrew. And one phrase stands out in particular, Eretz ochelet yoshvea hi. This is a land that eats you up. And you, you will find Israelis today referring to the land uh, as Eretz ochelet yoshvea. It's, it's a difficult place. It's a beautiful place. It's an amazing place, but it's it's hard. And and this is, I think, I, I think a particularly modern conundrum of, of Israel. We love it. We love Israel. We love being in Israel. It's and it's joyful and glorious to be there. It's also challenging, as we of course have witnessed over the last few weeks. And but it, we should point out that this is a case of projection because they don't see the land devour their its inhabitants. The inhabitants are doing quite well. The Israelites think that they're going to be devoured. Indeed. Okay. So let's let's there's, go. There's a funny. There's a funny midrash about this that that uh, that they they arrived at a time when all of the inhabitants were burying their dead and they thought oh my goodness this land is causing these giants to have all these losses how much for us more but you know we have to talk about their self perception indeed because these these people you know the paradox that you said Elliot because the land obviously is nurturing these people because that's how they're growing so big. They're big and strong and mighty. And the the spies say, we appeared to ourselves as mere grasshoppers. And so we must have appeared to them as well. So if you feel yourself totally overwhelmed, doused, crushed by the people who are much bigger than you, if everybody looks like Shaquille O'Neal and you are, you know, a, a little a little pipsqueak. And you're a bunch of and you're a munchkin, you are going to feel um, just hopelessness. Right. And, and I think that the, the rich part of this story is that Moshe and his two closer advisors, Joshua and Caleb, um, should be giving the people this feeling of possibility, of, of affirmation, but they're, they're overwhelmed by fear. Fear gets the better of them, and they, they feel they cannot. So let's talk about that. And we, we've made ideas that are really psychological ideas here, the idea of projection, the idea of self-perception. And, and I think the theme that we'd like to, to, to focus on is that this is a deeply psychological story in the sense that, that there is a psychology between the leader and the people. There is a psychology between Moses and God. There is projection all around. Uh, let's delve into the psychology th this moment. It's, it's a, a deeply painful moment. Uh, let's uh, here, just let me quote you. The people react to, to uh, Moses and Aaron. They complain by Yilonu, and that's not new, obviously. Lu matnu. Would that we have died. Would that we had died in, in, in the land of Egypt. Obamibar, or in the desert. Lu matnu. And, and isn't it interesting that they, they are using this kind of such catastrophic language. Moses himself uses that language. Moses says in last week's Parsha, you know, just kill me now. Take me out of here. I'm, I'm done. And the people are in 
a way mirroring Moses in, in the worst way. That's one dynamic going on here. Barry, talk some more about, about well, the psychology. Debilitating for the people is that if they want to have died in Egypt, it means they have no past. If they would have died in the wilderness, they have no present. And they don't see themselves as having a future in the land. So they have nothing. And it's a terrible burden for them. And I think we have to feel some empathy because, let's face it, we like to talk about Joshua and Caleb. But had we been in the generation of the wilderness, you know, 90% likely or more, we would have been with the 10 tribes, not with Joshua and Caleb. So, I think that that observation is so is really wonderful about the, the, the two dimensions of, you know, if we had died in Egypt, if we died in the desert. The one thing guaranteed to make God enraged in the book of Bamidbar or, or other books too, but especially Bamidbar, when you say, I wish we never left Egypt, like the, the drive is to move on. And when people say, I wish we had died in Egypt, I wish we never left Egypt, that, that's, that's like the repudiation of the idea that the people are headed for some kind of spiritual and, and social and religious achievement. And so they, they want to they give up on the past, they want to give up on the present, and they have no future. That's a, a great observation. You know, we were talking about, you, you said uh, before, Elliot, that the, the populace mirrors Moshe. I think that's really interesting. Uh, we closed off last parasha in Bahalotcha with, with, the, with the encounter between Miriam and Aaron, and they're, they're complaining on, against Moshe. And the reason the Torah gives for Moshe's grand, you know, real greatness is his humility, his anava. But here, just one chapter later, uh, we learn that sometimes anava can hold you back, right? Moses, oh, he's, Moses is so humble. Isn't that wonderful? Well, the, the ten spies have an extraordinarily uh, overactive view of their own smallness. So humility, you know, on steroids can... Uh, can uh, uh, imprison you. So, so I want to I want to just hone in on one thing you said, and maybe connect it, which is that there's aggression here. The people have aggression against God by saying what they say, which is the ultimate. It's like the the stinger, right? You know, we we could have stayed in Egypt. We why did we have to come out? That that goes really to the core. That's the the moment of aggression. And do you think that the humility uh, brings on this aggression, or do you think that people are, are exercising or expressing their aggression because of something else? Do they have a do they have a problem here? With well, they've been brutalized, and you sometimes we're a little too glib about their experience of slavery. You know, it's demeaning and it's degrading, and it does not leave people with a lot of dignity. And it's something that we we do well to remember. They have been a very a beaten down people. And, you know, what finally became clear to me, Jeremy, when you were talking, is that when they say they would have rather died in Egypt, that's actually a denial of God. Right? God's great gift is the exodus. You know, he took us out of Egypt, which is going to be echoed when we get to Parshat Tzitzit at the end of the Torah reading. And if we would have rather died in Egypt, it means we didn't need the Exodus. We don't need God. We're better off slaves in Egypt. And that has to be a, a, a slap in the, the face, as it were, of God. Well, it's in fact, you know, how would you interpret the words, Ad anna yena amazeh, 
How long will this people yinatsuni? What would that what does that mean? How long is this people gonna smack me in the face? How long is this yeah, people gonna yeah. fame me? How long are people gonna really what? Fill in the blank. What does that mean? I mean, I think I think it's it's you know, provoke, taunt, irk. Um, smack in the face is pretty good. By the way, niatsnu in, in our in our uh, when the Talmud says that somebody who who um, you know uh, uh, violates who, who steals or violates ethical commandments on the way to food and then and then goes and makes a bracha on the food that's not a bracha or it means treif that's not a I actually do think halakhically speaking you should make a bracha if you eat treif but that's not the way Maimonides says it. But um, the the Talmud says, "Ein zemevarech ela mina eitz." You're not actually blessing. You're just you're actually taunting. It's repudiation. Okay, so that's the next line. We can relate. You know, how long are they not going to believe in me? How long are they not going to have faith in me? In other words, how long are they going to abandon me, repudiate me, stick me in the eye, smack my face? Enough their their aggression and, and so. Is how would you characterize God's reaction here? It's 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 not exactly you know the understanding here. No. <laughs> it's kind of petulant. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I, I think sometimes God expects more of the people than they can deliver. And you know, one of the things we we do well to keep in mind is, you know, as it's codified in the halakha, you can't ask people to do what they can't do. It isn't right. And it is, and it isn't fair. And sometimes that's part of the situation. But the point I think we have to address is that I think that when we delve into the parsha, we see a historical moment that the people miss. Yeah. And they have a chance that we have to think would have worked to get into the promised land. And two things happen: one in the Torah, and one outside the Torah. In the Torah, they're set back a generation because they forfeit not just the moment, but their experience of the land. They will never get to the land. But look at what the rabbis do. They make this the symbol of everything else that's going to happen to the Jews in a negative way, where we also lose historical moments all throughout our history. You know, it's just, you know, as the rabbis say, what happens to our ancestors signifies what will happen to us in some way. So the question I have, even as we, we think about this on, on this level, is how do you know that you're living in a historical moment? I mean, and, and, and maybe our present frame of, of the whole pandemic, you know, today we're recording this on Wednesday, there's you know, I, I think certainly a momentous moment. There was an election of a new president. That's that's obviously a pivotal moment in in the leadership, albeit symbolic leadership of, of Israel. But uh, at, at barely ten minutes to midnight before the deadline, they came up with a coalition agreement. It's, it's hobbling and and very fragile. But but that might be a historical moment. How do you know that you're living in a historical moment? And and is it presumptuous if you are? Is it obvious, or is it you know something you have to reflect on? I don't know. You know, I, that's a, a great and, and mysterious question, and perhaps um, not only 
you know, is it a really hard question to answer? Maybe it's an impossible question to answer because there's so many different factors that go into making something a historical moment that uh, it's only in retrospect that it turns out to have been one. Like, let's say, you know, you mentioned about the coalition. I think it's totally plausible that the coalition lasts five minutes. Yes. Okay. And in which case, what looks like a historical moment turns out not to be one. Well, you that know? goes back to Barry's point, which is which is that it's a missed opportunity, and and that's that's what you're saying here. Here's the colossal missed opportunity for the they could have they could have you know gone into the land on day year two whatever yeah continue. But I, yeah, but I would say um, that one of the things that I like about this story, and and I think it is also plausible. Like we 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 you know make some uh, some omelets out of this cracked egg when we say. You know that the that the Dor Hamidbar, the generation of the desert, who um, had to to they 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 had to die out before coming into Eretz Yisrael because they were so for all the reasons that Barry Chesler said they they were so beaten down and traumatized and brutalized by being by being slaves that we, we needed another generation. Um, and I there's a, an aspect of the story that that I like that is exactly the the, the religious meaning of exactly what Barry pointed out, which is that God is always asking us to do things, asking the people in the Torah, and by extension us, to do things that we're not up to, because the divine demands are infinite or nearly infinite. The divine demands, by virtue of being divine, are by definition beyond human ken. And so humans, as they try to be partners in the Brit, with God, as they try to be servants of God, are always going to be running up against their their limitations. And so one of the things that I find powerful about Judaism is that it is a story of exile and return, failure and, and, and you know, a second try, a, re, a destroyed temple and a rebuilt temple and a sin and a tshuva. So one of the, you know, by the Mishnah, noting all the bad stuff that happened on Tisha B'Av, says that it is on Tisha B'Av that they came back, the spies came back with a bad report, and God says you're 40 years in the desert. So this becomes, uh, which, which by the way instantiates that they, that they left around Shavuot, right? Because they left in the, in the sort of high spring, and they come back in high summer with the bad report. Um, but this fits then the mythic pattern of, of total you know, divine uh, plan, and order and human failure to actualize it for which we are always trying to enact a second chance. And I, I like that. I think this is a religion of the recognition of, uh, of limited human greatness and the striving always to be the most that we can be, always falling short, but always trying again. No, so if we, go ahead. We give it a literary turn. So what you're saying, I think, Jeremy, is that religion and Judaism in particular is supposed to be aspirational and inspirational. But if we focus on the perspirational, that's when we come to failure, that we have to get beyond our sweat, the work that we need to do to realize the aspiration and to lift the or be lifted by the inspiration. And if we can't do that, then, you know, we are mired in our sweat, and it does not come to a good end. All right, let's go back to another point, which is the psychology. So so if, if Barry, as you say, God is a bit petulant here, do you think Moses' uh, direction, Moses' question to God, which is, you know, 
what are they going to say about you, basically? You know, if you, God wants to destroy the people because of this. Again, he wants to destroy the people. And Moses basically appeals to God's vanity and says, look, what are they going to say about you? The people that you took them out to here to die, basically. And then, and then Mo, I think this is, again, a great moment. moment Moses says, right? forgive this people, this, this great sin, according to your great kindness. And so where is the forgiveness coming uh, from? And, and what, what, what is happening here? What, what, what's going on here? And in the back of our minds, I want to compare this to the Golden Cap episode. How do you relate to this moment of, his, of Moses's intercession to God? So one of our old colleagues, colleagues, Rabbi William Berman, used to come speak at my school because he had kids, three kids who graduated, so he'd come in to address the seniors. And he pointed out that one function of these intercessions is that God says things to get Moses to respond. That it's not that God is going to destroy the people, but he needs Moses to step up for the people. He is, Moses is the one who is also in a precarious situation because he wants to give up. Yeah. He wants to abandon the people. And, you know, in some of the stories, he wants to give everything up, his life included. And I think that, you know, perhaps God here is a master psychologist. He gets Moses to defend the people. And then God's response is, Salachti kidvarecha. I'm doing what you want to do which is forgive the people. This, this becomes, I guess, one of the, the great paradigms of forgiveness. And, and so in the back of my mind is the, is the Golden Calf episode. I, Jeremy, break yeah. them. I don't, you, which, which do you think is, or, or compare, contrast? Well, so I wanted to say, uh, with, with a, a little back, back, back you know, turn around to the Golden Calf episode, after, after that sin, and we can talk about the, the, the parallels between the faithlessness of the people at that point and the faithlessness of the people now. But how does that one end with the, the Yud Gimel Midot, the 13, this, this motion got into this very intense uh, encounter on the, on the cleft of the rock. And it's, it's actually very difficult to tell in the Torah who says whether, whether, the Lord, the Lord is gracious and merciful and patient. Rav Chesed Emet, abounding in in faithfulness and love, it's, it's not because the Moshe is speaking or God is speaking or they're singing it together. But now, exactly in the passage that you said, the, the, the midrash wonderfully says about the thirteen midot. Listen, whenever you're in trouble, here's what you do: you say these things. I can't resist it. I, I you just access my merciful nature and. That's exactly what Moshe does. Uh, Moshe, in, in, in this week's parsha, Moshe is confronted with that with that uh, crisis, and says, um, "Let your power be great, as you have said." So you, God, told me that you are the paradigm of patience and kindness. So I'm reminding you of that and accessing perhaps the, the kindness within. So what do you think is worse, the golden calf or the spies? Well, in a sense, there are two sides of the same coin because what's striking about the golden calf is when 
they pull the golden calf when it magically appears, they say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. So there's the Exodus trope with that, that we also see in the account of the spies as well, where they're denying God's role in the Exodus. And I think that there, when we put the stories together, it's really a call for the true worship of God. And it's supposed to pull us back to Sinai where we're supposed to hear that God brought us out of Egypt. We're supposed to hear that God wants no other images before us. And we're not supposed to hear it for the moment. We're supposed to hear it forever. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. So what do you think, Elliot? What do you, I, you know what? I, I, I'm going to uh, say that the, uh, this episode, the spying episode, is actually a much more difficult episode. Uh, Notwithstanding the fact that that obviously they, they violate one of the commandments, they violate you know there should you should not have any other gods beside you right and idolatry yeah that's that's a big okay, but it seems that in the human element of this is just so much more profound you know in the at at, at the golden calf episode lots of people were were killed in a in a civil war here the whole people is sentenced basically to wandering. Um, and, and there's a convulsion here that people want to kind of break forward. A few people want to break forward, um, but they have to begin to realize that, that we're not going to make it and that, and that it's going to be to our children. And that realization, I think, is, is deeper. It's, it's, it's deeper than idolatry. Um, you know, the, 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 awesome, uh, the, the awesome, in the sense of terrifying, and the no-ra quality of the punishment actually is a really interesting piece of evidence because in the end of the day, like 3,000 people are killed for the golden calf. That's not that many in the massive camp of Israel, which is 600,000 adult males, 2 million people. It's like a tiny number uh, percentage-wise. And this, as you, as you point out, is the whole generation. I, I am going to fall back on almost the educative quality to this, the God recognizing that the people aren't ready rather than than maybe their own their own faithlessness, but I do think that that's a very the, the scope of the punishment is really interesting. I um, I also can't as a as a as a Jew who has uh, not made my life in in the land of Israel. Um, yeah, I yet um, I, I should be so lucky to do so at some point, but um, I, I also think that that in a sense idolatry. Is is an imperative. Avoiding idolatry is an imperative, you know, uh, uh, at all places and all times. And the identification, as important as Eretz Yisrael is, the like reaching the promised land because it is the promised land. It it doesn't occupy the same spot in my religious life as avoiding false idols does. Interesting. So so so. I, we're not breaking down here on Zionism and 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 diasporaism, but um, you know, living in the land obviously is is the challenge. How do you how do you create a society that lives in the land? And and the the generation of the desert is really the generation of formation. And so you know, we can say that Israel, that is modern Israel, is in a constant state of of formation. Uh, there's so much to, to really think about and consider when you can, when you compare and contrast those uh, those stories. But we got to move to the end of the parsha, and the end of the parsha contains 
at least two very interesting things, one of which we're going to probably have to leave to next year, which is the Mokoshesh Etzim. There's a guy, he's gathering branches on Shabbos. (laughs) What's that? The local wood gatherer. The wood gatherer, and and that's just not good. And 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 you know what? You, you want you want to have a guy in black black clothing walk by him and say, "Shabbos." <laughs> not good. Don't well, you can throw stones at him. You can throw stones at him. Okay, titit. We recite this daily, twice a day, three times a day. The Kriya Dashma, Kriya Shema. Asulam tzitzit. Tell the people that they should wear tzitzit al kanthevik dam ladoratam for generations. Talk about this. And talk about this in terms of maybe what is it doing here and why are we? Why do we recite this? What What does this mean to so you? So I, I have a, first of all, I just love this mitzvah. I love the practice of wearing tzitzit. Um, I, uh, I, I sometimes think that, you know, the major human needs food, shelter, and clothing. And think about the way that our religion sanctifies food with brachot and kashrut, and we thank, sanctify shelter with mezuzah, and we sanctify and 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 the gagecha. We sanctify our shelter also by keeping it safe for people, and we sanctify our clothing with this this you know tzitz, this little blossom, this little bud on your on your clothing, in which you extend stand out in the form of these strings. And I would say, I'm gonna borrow from what what Barry said a little bit earlier about um, the people uh, um, by by saying, I wish I died in Egypt, they're repudiating the the whole gift of God and the whole providential leadership of God. Um, just Just let me be a slave, let me be undignified, I don't care. I don't have to go on a journey, I don't have to aspire and so when you put on tzitzit, you first of all get reminded um, of the mitzvot. You, you have a tendency to forget these things in your smallness and your fear. You got to be reminded of them. You got to do them. But I also want to point out that, you know, just, you, you put on these strings a thread of blue. And most of our listeners probably know that in our own lifetimes, or, you know, in, in roughly the year, uh, in, in our own, in certainly the last 150 years, um, uh, the techelet, the original techelet has been rediscovered in the form of the Chilazon. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi Herzog, the grand, great-grandfather of the new president of Israel, Nasi Israel, Buzhi Herzog, um, you know, discovered through a mir- magnificent work of scholarship and archaeology and chemistry, uh, the ancient dye, and so the ancient dye was, uh, you got to wear royal blue, right? Every single person had one string of royal blue in their, in their, in their clothing. So it's a way of saying, by the way, each one of you are b'nei melachim. Every single one of you, you're not loser slaves, you are royalty and you have a royal mission. And so the, wearing tchelet on my tzitzit, on my outer talit, I just, I feel that call to try to aspire to nobility as, as exemplified in the in the thread of royal blue I, let me let me piggyback on that and, and get barry will get the last word here you know I, I i think what 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 i'd like to say here is that after the messiness of this parsha after the you know it's it's brutal it's it's horrible 
you know, there, there's a certain shelter in going back to, you know, the idea, Kedoshim, to you be holy, the whole mitzvot notion, the idea that, that you are a, a, a holy people. In other words, we, we need these symbols. We need a set of symbols, including, you know, clothing, which wraps us in order to reconnect. And, and now that we have had a, a great crisis, a catastrophic crisis, remind ourselves you know, that there's shelter here, that you can uh, have a moment of contact with the essence uh, and your calling. Barry, what would you say? You gotta, you're you're, you're uh, muted there. I would say that the mitzvah is a humanizing element. Indeed. That um, we wear the tzitzit because as all human beings, we can be led astray by our eyes and our heart. And in addition to being royal, we're also human. And even though we will sin, we can be so much better than a sinner. And the CC reminds us of that, I think, that our religious quest is to not follow our eyes and our heart, but to follow God. And we consider ourselves part of royalty because we don't want to be like our ancestors who stayed in the wilderness because they could not seize the moment. We want to be like our ancestors who were able to venture forth into the promised land. Wow, what a, what a lovely um, thought to, to end on. It's, it's, um, maybe that's the, the idea. The Parsha wants to give us that, uh, that aspirational uh, idea to, to really see ourselves as if we are going forward. And that's what we need to do that, to do uh, the reminders, the royalty, the all of the symbolism. What's been wonderful is that I, I've come to think lately that education is all about change. That yeah. if you want to be educated, you need to recognize that you're not the same person that you were yesterday. And existentially, the difficulty for the generation of the wilderness is that they could not change. They were mired in the past and they could not find within them enough to go beyond the physical step forward. They had no emotional apparatus that could carry them forward. And that is perhaps why God left them in the wilderness so that the wilderness-born generation could inherit the land. But what you said just reminds me of a, of a you know, in, in the in the Moran Sanhedrin, who gets Olam Haba? Who, who's like the door of the, the generation of the flood is so bad they don't get the generation of the, of the, of the Tower of Babel is so bad they don't get the Olam Haba. Rabbi Akiva says, oh, the door of the, gen the generation of the Midbar, so bad, they don't get it. And, and the Talmud says about that, Rabbi Akiva abandoned his typical kindness. What a great comment. Okay. Like, so, so we, you know, the, the, the Talmud, or I forget the name of the person who says it, but somebody says, Rabbi Akiva has here abandoned his typical kindness. And I think that, you know, in our, in our conversation today, um, we've wrestled with, Obviously, Torah has a very negative judgment of these people, but we've also, you know, as you said, Bear, like if, if we were there, where where would we have been? The to to be able to look at empathy, to be able to look with empathy at people who are struggling to reach beyond themselves to a very very grand task, and how scary and how challenging that actually is. Hopefully, with with we can look in our eyes with a little chesed as well. Wow, and this, uh, this generation will live in our imaginations, in our consciousness, as it always does. And 
So will this conversation. This has uh, been really meaningful. I hope that our listeners and viewers uh, have been able to reshape the way they think about this story. I want to thank uh, Barry, Jeremy, for this great conversation. I want to thank our listeners and viewers. We wish you all a beautiful Shabbat, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Parshatana. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.